Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams Tertiary Phase The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy claims that the campaign for real time was inspired not only by an instinct to preserve the traditions of linear chronology, but because there was once a poet. His name was Lalifer, and he wrote what are widely regarded throughout the galaxy as being the finest poems in existence, the songs of the Long Land. Lalifer had lived in the forests of the Long Lands of Effa, and he wrote his poems on pages made of dried habra leaves, without the benefit of education, or correcting fluid. Long after his death, his poems were found and wandered over. News of them spread like morning sunlight. For centuries, they illuminated and watered the lives of many people whose existence might otherwise have been darker and drier. Then, shortly after the invention of time travel, some major correcting fluid manufacturers from the Mancunian Nebula were chatting at a sixth-dimensional sales conference. Here, I may not know much about poetry, but I know what I like. I say, I may not know much Aye, about... we heard the first time. Oh, yeah. Well, I was just thinking about that, that Lalifer. You know, poetry bloke. What he could have done with some high-quality correcting fluid in a variety of leafy shades. Exactly what I was thinking. And I'm uh, <clears throat> wondering if we could persuade him, like, to uh, say a few words to that effect. Eh? Could open up the Andromeda market, eh? So they travelled the time waves, found him, and did indeed persuade him. In fact, they persuaded him to such an effect that he became extremely rich, and frequently commuted to the future to do chat shows, on which he sparkled wittily. Thus he never got around to writing the poems. This was a problem but one easily solved. Each week, the correcting fluid manufacturers simply packed him off somewhere different. Right, there you go, lad. Copy of your books. Stack of dried abra leaves to copy it onto. Just make the odd mistake, then uh, correct it in the usual way. Uh, <clears throat> here's your emolument. Carry on like that, son. There's plenty more where that came from, eh? <laughs> and he did. Many people now claim, though, that the poems became suddenly worthless. Other people argue that they are exactly the same as they always were, so what's changed? This prompted the first people to set up the campaign for real time to try and stop this sort of thing going on. One of its principal activists, the Magathean planet designer Slati Bartfast, is currently using the room of informational illusions aboard the starship Bistromath to give Arthur Dent and Ford Prefect an important and very realistic history lesson. These, then, were the Cricket Wars, the greatest devastation ever visited upon our galaxy. Oh, dear. But don't look so apprehensive, Earthman. It's just a documentary. I know, but it seems so real. Well, it was, when it happened. And let us not forget, and in just a moment, I'll be able to suggest a way which will help us always to remember, that before the Cricket Wars... This is not a good bit. Do not agree to buy anything at this point. Terribly sorry. I can't seem to find the remote control. The symbol known as the Wicket Gate. 
the three pillars. I'm sure I've seen that before. What? That arrangement of sticks on the asteroid. It looks stupefyingly familiar. The asteroid is the lock. The wicket gate is the key. I like those girls floating around it. A bit like angels. Apart from the clothes, angels usually wear them. Uh, where is that? There is not a world in the galaxy where this symbol is not revered to this day. Even in primitive worlds, it persists in racial memories. Three stumps, two bales. Well, that's a wicket. That's right, the wicket gate. This it is that now locks away their world to the end of eternity. Cricket, wicket, extraordinary. This is not the real key, of course. That, as we all know, was destroyed and lost forever. This, my friends, is a replica, hand-tooled by skilled craftsmen into a memento you will be proud to own, in memory of those who fell. Ah, found it! Yeah. Now, let us all bow our heads in payment. Just don't nod. I promise to prove. You getting the gist? I hope that's what it is. Let me spool back a few billion years. Yes, yes, nearly there. Ah, stand by for the informational illusion. This is more like it. Soft grass, nice evening breeze. Is this Earth? It does look a bit home counties, but very cold. Seems warm enough to me. Very unwelcoming. It looks appealing, but feels impersonal. Hmm. Like a good-looking woman writing you a parking ticket. But this cricket angle. We'll walk down to that village, and I'll tell you about it. The game you know as cricket is just one of those curious freaks of racial memory. Of all the races in the galaxy, only the English could possibly revive the memory of the most horrific wars ever to sunder the universe and transform it into what I'm afraid is generally regarded as an incomprehensibly dull and pointless game. Ah, no, fair play. Rather fond of cricket myself, as it happens, but in most people's eyes, you have been inadvertently guilty of the most grotesque bad taste, particularly the bit about the little red ball hitting the wicket. Very nasty. Oh. These cricket men are the ones who started it all, and it will all start tonight. Oh, is something dreadful about to happen? The battle cruisers with the white robots aren't about to arrive overhead, are they? Oh. My God. Nothing is about to attack you here. This is where it all started. The place itself. Cricket. As it was ten billion years ago. There aren't any stars. Shh. Listen and watch. And everything's so nice. The masters of cricket. And everyone's so happy. Beneath the ink black sky. Yes. Well, they seem nice enough. Not that I trust appearances anymore. I'm under her spell. And we walked hand in hand above the grass. And in the dark we kiss. What a strange song. They're beneath the ink black skies, hand in hand above the grass. Not under the moon or beneath the stars, as you might expect. I suppose because it's so black overhead. Arthur? Yes? Why are you tiptoeing? Uh, was I? Yes, we're still on the Starship Bistro, Math. This is a recorded informational illusion. You could walk past those people blowing a euphonium for all the notice they'll take. I'll bear that in mind. 
You know, of course, what's about to happen. Me? No. Did you not learn ancient galactic history at school? I was in the cybercubicle behind Zaphod Beeblebrox. It was always the same three hands going up. His. You know, I get the distinct feeling of being alone in the universe. Not so the people of Cricket. Their solar system, their single sun with its single world, was, as you see, surrounded by a huge dust cloud. So there was never anything to see in the sky except their sun. The reason they never thought, we are alone in the universe, is that until this night, they don't know about the universe. Until this night. And everything so nice. Hear that, brothers? What a strange and disagreeable sound. Surely it is not the wind in the trees. It is not of the earth or the air. I mislike it greatly, but cannot fathom its origin. Friends, this cannot be, for it is not possible. The sound we hear comes from above. Ah! Behold, a fiery streak in the void. <gasps> wow. Can't they see it's a spaceship? Or the wreckage of one coming out of the blackness? Why would they look? They have no idea anything could exist up there. Until tonight. <laughs> Brothers, we must go see what manner of visitation is upon us. Lead on. I will sing of what we find. I too will follow. Some speak of the starship Heart of Gold, some of the starship Bistromath, and some in hushed tones of the starship Titanic. But whilst these and other great spaceships which come to mind, such as the Galactic Fleet Battleships, the GSS Daring, the GSS Audacity, and the GSS Suicidal Insanity, are all regarded with awe, pride, enthusiasm, affection, regret, jealousy, resentment, in fact, most of the better-known emotions. The craft which regularly commands the most actual astonishment was Cricket One, the first spaceship ever built by the people of Cricket. This is not because it was a wonderful ship. It was not. It was a crazy piece of near junk, and looked for all the galaxy as if it had been knocked up in somebody's backyard, which was, in fact, precisely where it had been knocked up. The most astonishing thing about the ship was not that it was done well, it wasn't, see above, but that it was done at all, as the period of time which elapsed between the moment that the people of Cricket discovered that there was such a thing as space and the launching of their first spaceship was, as near as Dammit is to Domit, almost exactly a year. Stand by, brothers number two and number three. Standing by, brother number one. Standing by, brother number one. Push blue switch. Push it, blue switch. Now this is going to fly, is it? Brother number three. Just strap yourself in. Can't oh, we fast forward through this spaceship, then? Certainly not. Watch and learn. This is the pivotal event. The wiring isn't even insulated. I've heard of low tech, but these controls are bathroom fittings. They are perfectly safe. It's an informational illusion which you will find extremely instructive and not a little harrowing. These singer-songwriting people stripped down the wreckage of that crashed ship and within a year built this? Just relax and be harrowed. I can do that. <laughs> Second thoughts. You'd better hold on. Lift off! All systems optimal! No way, no way does anyone design and build a ship like this in a year. 
No matter how motivated, prove it to me and I still won't believe it. Yes, well, the Masters of Cricket did. Their historic mission was to find out if there was anything or anywhere beyond the blackness from which the wrecked spaceship could have come. Actually, I think I will fast forward a bit. That's the Cricket Man flying to the edge of their solar system, the inner perimeter of the hollow dust cloud which surrounds their sun and home planet. Now watch. They're on the brink of breaking through it. History is gathering itself. Three, two, one... Behold the universe, the staggering jewels of the night in their infinite dust. Imagine the impact of this vision on a species whose entire philosophy demands that they are the only sentient creatures in creation. Insanity? Bitter but rational disappointment? No. So how did they react on the first sight of the universe? Very simply. It'll have to go. Although it's been said that on Earth alone in our galaxy has cricket, or cricket, been treated as fit subject for a game, and that for this reason the Earth has been shunned, this does only apply to our galaxy, and more specifically to our dimension. In some of the higher dimensions, they feel they can more or less please themselves, and have been playing a peculiar game called Brockian Ultra Cricket for their trans-dimensional equivalent of billions of years. A full set of rules is so massively complicated that the only time they were all bound together in a single volume, they underwent gravitational collapse and became a black hole. All that is known of the game can be found in the archives of the BUCC. Rule 1. Grow at least three extra legs. You won't need them, but my Darrow thing, it does help to keep the crowds amused. And now it's Perkins galloping out to extremely silly square leg. Rule 2. Find one good Brockian ultra cricket player, clone him ten few times. This saves an enormous amount of tedious selection and training. Three, put your team and the opposing team in a large field and build a high wall round them. The reason for this is that a crowd that has just watched a rather humdrum game experiences far less life affirmation than a crowd that believes it has just missed the most dramatic event in sporting history. Four. Throw assorted items of sporting equipment over the wall for the players. Anything will do. Cricket bats, base cube bats, tennis guns, skis, anything you can get a good swing with. Rule 5. The players should now lay about themselves for all they are worth with whatever they find to hand. Whenever a player scores a hit on another player, he should immediately run away and apologize from a safe distance, usually through a megaphone. Sorry. Rule 6. The winning team shall be the first team that wins. Curiously enough, the more popular the game grows in the higher dimensions, the less it's actually played, since most of the competing teams are now in a state of permanent warfare over the interpretation of those rules. This is all for the best because in the long run, a good solid war is always less psychologically damaging than a protracted game of Brockian Ultra Cricket. However, for Zephod Beeblebrox, a badly mixed pan-galactic gargle blaster has a similarly deleterious effect. Where did I go wrong? Jack Spirit, Santraginian Seawater, Arcturan Megagin, Marsh Gas, Hypermane Extract, Tooth of Sun Tiger. Maybe it's the olive. It is my pleasure to open for you. Zarkov. And my satisfaction to close again with the knowledge of a job well done. Door. 
wish me to open for you again, it would be my... No, shut up. Trillium has jumped ship. I'm alone on the heart of gold. I've put an electronic gag across that Sarkin computer's speech terminals. All non-essential systems are closed down and we're drifting in a remote area of the galaxy. So which particular hundred thousand people would turn up at this point and say a totally unexpected what? I'm not imagining this. Computer? Order! Is there someone on this ship? Yeah. Are they heading for the bridge? Yeah. Who is it? Well, a whole thing of criminal work and what are going? Well, put the whole thing on Sarkoan, the speech terminals are on the bridge. Computer, when I ungag you, remind me to punch myself in the mouth. Either mouth. Look, one for yes, two for no. Is it dangerous? It is? You didn't just go twice. Huh. I guess the trick would be to reach the bridge before whoever it is does. Wait here. You know what I mean. He who gets to the bridge first controls the ship, baby. Here we are. Zark, they came through the other bridge door. Have a nice day. Holy photons! I can gag the door circuits. Door, if you can hear me, say so very, very quietly. I can hear you. Good. Now, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to open. When you open, I do not want you to say that you enjoyed it, okay? Okay. Neither do I want to hear that I have made a simple door very happy. Or that it is your pleasure to open for me and your satisfaction to close again with the knowledge of a job well done. Okay. Okay. And I have no plans to have a nice day. Understand? Understood. Okay. Open. Is that the way you like it, Mr. Beeblebrox? No. <laughs> Hi, guy. <laughs> oh, 11 of you. Good. Tunneling into the improbability drive compartment. Tough room. Okay, dude. I want you to imagine that I have an extremely powerful Kilozap blaster pistol in my hand. You do have a Kilozap blaster pistol in your hand? You never know what you're going to grab up a wall bracket in a hurry. So what are you cats doing here? Okay, robots. So what are you robots doing here? We have come for the gold bale. Huh? The gold bale is part of the key we seek to release our masters from cricket. You know, Metalhead, if I paid more attention to my history lessons and less to having sex with the girl in the next cyber cubicle, I know what you're on about. The cricket was his lifetime lock. Its key was disintegrated. The golden bell is embedded in the device which drives your ship. It will be reconstituted in the key. Our masters shall be released. The universal readjustment will continue. We already have the wooden pillar, the steel pillar, and the perspex pillar. Now we will have the gold bell. Uh, no, you won't. 
It's driving my ship. Now we will have the gold bail, and then we must go to a party. Hey, forget the bail. Let's party. No, we are going to shoot you. You're kidding. Ow. Okay, you're not kidding. What am I supposed to do with this piece of chicken? Toy with it, like this. You'll feel a tingle as it moves four-dimensionally through five-dimensional space. Oh, oh, oh! Yes, oh, I see. <laughs> so overnight, the whole population of cricket was transformed from being charming, delightful, intelligent, if whimsical, ordinary people, into charming, delightful, intelligent, whimsical, manic xenophobes. The idea of a universe didn't fit into their world picture, so to speak. They simply couldn't cope with it, and so charmingly, delightfully, intelligently, whimsically, if you like, they decided to destroy it. Mm. Oh, what's the matter now? I don't like the wine very much. Well, send it back, or you'll upset the mathematics. Waiter. On second thoughts, let's argue over the bill with him. Then we can go back to the room of informational illusions for the second half. There's more. Well, naturally, there's the cricket war crimes trial. All rise for sentencing by the chairman of the boards of judges at the cricket war crimes trial. His high judgmental supremacy, judiciary peg L I V R. L I V R. Learned, impartial, and very relaxed. Be seated, relax. Right, the people of cricket. Stick this under your chair for later. Yes, my lad. Mmm. Right, the people of cricket, or well, they're a bunch of real sweet guys. You know, just happen to want to kill everybody. Hell, I feel that way most mornings. Yeah. <laughs> What? The attack on the galaxy by the population of cricket was stunning. Thousands upon thousands of huge cricket warships leapt out of hyperspace and simultaneously attacked thousands upon thousands of major worlds, calmly zapping them out of existence. With unimaginable speed, the people of cricket had grasped the hypertechnology needed to build their fleet and dispatch millions of lethal white robots wielding formidable battle clubs, which launched a hideous arsenal of grenades ranging from minor incendiaries to maxi slaughter hypernuclear devices, which could take out a major sun. With one strike of the battle clubs, the grenades were simultaneously primed and launched with devastating accuracy, from mere yards to hundreds of thousands of miles. So we won. That's no big deal. A medium-sized galaxy against one little world. How long did it take us, kiddo? Huh? Uh, it is a trifle difficult to be precise in this matter. A time and distance. Hey, relax, guy. Oh, be vague. Well, it pains me to be vague over such. A... Bite the bullet, right, and be it.、Uh, very approximately, two thousand years. <laughs> and how many guys zilched out? Two grillion, my lad. Two grillion. That's a whole lot of stiffs. Now my real name is Enzipo Bybrock, five times ten to the eighth. How does he spell that? Big ten, little eight.、Hmm. Oh, what is in this water?、Uh, nothing, my lad. Well, take it away and put something in it. Okay, hear me, hear me, hear me. You behind the zap-proof crystal, representatives of cricket, listen up. You're a really sweet bunch of guys, you know, but. 
We wouldn't want to share a galaxy with you, you know. Not if you can't learn to relax a little. I mean, peaceful coexistence with you is a total no-show. On the other hand, these guys, you know, are entitled to their own view as it's shaped by the universe. And uh, according to their view, they were doing the right thing. They believe in peace, justice, morality, culture, sport family life and the obliteration of all other life forms well they're entitled to a view right now sentencing is uh, gonna be tricky but people I got an idea now stop me if you've heard it before judiciary pags idea was new popular and surprisingly well thought out thus casting severe doubts as to its authorship the planet of cricket was sentenced to be enclosed for perpetuity in an envelope of slow time, inside which life would continue almost infinitely slowly. All light would be deflected around the envelope, rendering it both invisible and impenetrable. Escape from the envelope would of course be utterly impossible unless it were unlocked from the outside. Then when the rest of the whole of creation reached its dying fall, and life and matter ceased to exist, the planet of Cricket and its sun would emerge to continue the solitary existence it craved in the twilight of the universal void. The lock was to be on an asteroid slowly orbiting the envelope. The key would be the symbol of the galaxy, the wicket gate. By the time the applause in the court had died down, Judiciary Pag was already in the Senso Shah with a rather nice member of the jury that he slipped a note to half an hour earlier. Hmm, what? What? Right. You are confusing me, sir. Nobody had the cannelloni. It's very nice. Dingo's kidneys. Dingo's kidneys. Yes, sir. I will ask the chef. It's an expression. Leave it alone. Nothing is lost forever. Except for the Cathedral of Chalism. The what? The Cathedral of Chalism. It was during the course of my researches at the campaign for real time that I... Oh, for goodness sake. The waiter wants to argue about who had the cannelloni. Is he surly or obsequious? Both. Excellent. Then the bistromatics have successfully maneuvered the ship out of subjective space and into a parking orbit. Come. We have a party to visit. Now you're talking. Just a minute. What's this campaign for real time you were talking about? Hi. Can I clear off your table, sir? It's time to switch off the bistro. <sighs> One moment, please. Listen. The time streams have become very polluted. Muck floating about in them, flotsam and jetsam, and more and more of it is now being regurgitated into the physical world. Eddies in the space-time continuum, you see. Still? Now, about this party? We are going to try to prevent the war robots of Cricket from regaining the whole of the key they need to unlock the planet of Cricket from the slow time envelope and release the rest of their army and their mad masters. Uh, you mentioned a party? Oh, sadly, I did. The idea seems to exercise a strange and unhealthy fascination on your mind. The more I unravel the dark and tragic story of cricket, the more you want to drink a lot and dance with girls. Mm. You've attached yourself to it the way an Arturan Megalich attaches itself to its victim before biting his head off and making off with his spaceship. So, when do we get there? When I've finished telling you why we have to go there. I know why I'm going. <sighs> I had hoped for an easy retirement. 
I was planning to learn to play the octavental hebephone, a pleasantly futile task because I have the wrong number of mouths. I'd also been planning to write an eccentric and relentlessly inaccurate monograph on the subject of equatorial fjords in order to set the record wrong about one or two matters I see as important. Well, why don't you then? Well, I somehow got talked into doing some part-time work for the campaign for real time and started to take it all seriously. Go on. At the campaign for real time, I noticed that five pieces of jetsam, which had, in relatively recent times, plopped back into existence, seemed to be corresponding to five pieces of the missing key. Only two I could trace exactly. The wooden pillar which appeared on your planet, and the silver bale which seems to be at some sort of party. We must go there and retrieve it before the cricket robots find it, or who knows what may happen. I've got a better idea. Let's go there in order to drink a lot and dance with as many girls as possible while there are still some left. If everything you've shown us is true, then we don't stand a whelk's chance in a supernova. What's a whelk got to do with a supernova? It doesn't stand a chance in one. The point is that people like you and me, Slarty Balfast, and Arthur, particularly and especially Arthur, are just dilettantes, eccentrics, layabouts, fart-arounds, if you like. Well, we're not obsessed by anything, you see, and that's the deciding factor. They care, we don't. They win. I care about a lot of things. What, such as? Well, life, the universe, and everything, really. Fjords. Would you die for them? A fjords? What would be the point? The point is this. <sighs> for whatever reason, let's just go. I think that's what I was trying to say. Follow me. The teleport cubicles are in the gentleman's bathroom. I'm not sure I find that very reassuring. Oh, they're very clean. Hmm. Now, if you just stand in there and there... In the cubicles? That's right. Do you realise that in all this time... I haven't once been to... Don't sit down. There's no paper anyway. Well, of course not. It's a teleportation device. Gentlemen, raise your seats. We're going to flush the chain on the count of three. All together now. One, One, two... Three. (coughs) Oh, I... Hate teleporting. <sighs> Ford? Slarty Bartfast? Well, that's just perfect. Well, it couldn't have been much of a party. Everybody's left. Hang on. This is a cave. Or is it a labyrinth? Well, at least there'll be a way out. Or an attendant. Or someone who can help. Hello? Hello? like Alice chasing the white rabbit. Oh, robot. There are no robots here. There are definitely no white robots here. There is, however, a neon sign saying, you have been diverted. Well, there was. I hope I'm dreaming this. Dots. There's a name for that. Irritating. Oh, and a comma. You have been diverted. Dot a dot comma. Well, not entertainingly.
Sounds like somebody beating a bass drum in here with me. Somebody is beating a bass drum. Do not be alarmed. Okay, what should I be? Come on, Simon. Be very, very frightened. Arthur Dent. Is, is anyone there? Grow up, Arthur. There are no hideous monsters here. If there are, I'll eat my. Ah! What do you want? Bet you weren't expecting to see me again. What has Arthur Dent stumbled upon in the recesses of the labyrinth? Has Ford Prefect found a drink and a pair group to share it with? Can Slarty Bartfast stop the cricket robots from acquiring the silver bale? Fasten your acceleration straps. It's going to be a bumpy next installment of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. In that episode of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams, William Franklin was the book. Simon Jones played Arthur Dent, Jeffrey McGiven, Ford Prefect, Mark Wing Davy, Zaphod Beeblebrox, Dominic Hawksley, The Wicked Voice, and Richard Griffiths was Slarty Bartfast. Douglas Adams played Agra Jag, Roger Gregg played Eddie, and Rupert Degas was Judiciary Pag. Mike Fenton Stevens, Philip Pope, and Tom Maggs were the population of Cricket, and Henry Blofeld and Fred Truman were themselves. The announcer was John Marsh. The surround mix was by Paul Dealey, and the live FX by Ken Humphrey. The Cricket song was by Philip Pope, the script editor was John Langdon, and the music was by Paul Wicks Wickens. The production assistants were Laura Harris and Joe Wheeler. The program was adapted, directed, and co-produced by Dirk Maggs. The producers were Helen Chatwell and Bruce Hyman, and it was an above-the-title production for BBC Radio 4. See how the flowers grow It's such a shame my dog died He loved the flowers so It's so much fun working on the farm If you have been affected by or would like to talk to someone about any of the issues featured in that programme, you may like to vidiphone our sub-ether helpline. Calls charged at galactic rates. <laughs>